I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thank you for joining me. Two seasonal stories this evening to appeal to all moods and temperaments. One is a classic tale based on a medieval legend, the other a humorous and liberating piece from a member of the famous and witty Algonquin Roundtable. Our Lady's Juggler is a religious miracle story by the French author Anatole France. It was published in 1892 and was based on an old medieval legend. Similar to the later Christmas carol, The Little Drummer Boy, it tells the story of a juggler turned monk who had no gift to offer a statue of the Virgin Mary except his ability to juggle well. Upon doing so, he is accused of blasphemy by the other monks, but then the miracle takes place. It was made into an opera by composer Jules Massenet in 1902. It's been adapted as a radio play and has furnished the basis for a number of film and television versions. Our Lady's Juggler by Anatole France In the days of King Louis, there was a poor juggler in France, a native of Compiègne, Barnaby by name, who went about from town to town performing feats of skill and strength. On fair days he would unfold an old worn-out carpet in the public square, and when by means of a jovial address, which he had learned of a very ancient juggler, and which he never varied in the least, he had drawn together the children and loafers, he assumed extraordinary attitudes, and balanced a tin plate on the tip of his nose. At first the crowd would feign indifference. But when, supporting himself on his hands face downwards, he threw into the air six copper balls which glistened in the sunshine, and caught them again with his feet, or when, throwing himself backwards until his heels and the nape of his neck met, giving his body the form of a perfect wheel, he would juggle in this posture with a dozen knives, a murmur of admiration would escape the spectators, and pieces of money rained down upon the carpet. Nevertheless, like the majority of those who live by their wits, Barnaby of Compiègne had a great struggle to make a living. Earning his bread by the sweat of his brow, he bore rather more than his share of the penalties consequent upon the misdoings of our father Adam. Again, he was unable to work as constantly as he would have been willing to do. The warmth of the sun and the broad daylight were as necessary to enable him to display his brilliant parts as to the trees if flower and fruit should be expected of them. In winter time, he was nothing more than a tree stripped of its leaves and, as it were, dead. The frozen ground was hard to the juggler, and, like the grasshopper, of which Marie de France tells us, the inclement season caused him to suffer both cold and hunger, but as he was simple-natured, he bore his ills patiently. He never meditated on the origin of wealth, nor upon the inequality of human conditions. He believed firmly that if this life should prove hard, the life to come could not fail to redress the balance, and this hope upheld him. He did not resemble those thievish and miscreant Mary Andrews who sell their souls to the devil. He never blasphemed God's name. He lived uprightly, and although he had no wife of his own, he did not covet his neighbors, since woman is ever the enemy of the strong man, as it appears in the history of Samson recorded in the Scriptures. In truth, his was not a nature much disposed to carnal delights, 
and it was a greater deprivation to him to forsake the tankard than the maid who bore it. For whilst not wanting in sobriety, he was fond of a drink when the weather waxed hot. He was a worthy man who feared God, and was very devoted to the Blessed Virgin. Never did he fail on entering a church to fall upon his knees before the image of the Mother of God, and offer up this prayer to her. Blessed Lady, keep watch over my life until it shall please God that I die, and when I am dead, ensure to me the possession of the joys of paradise. Now, on a certain evening, after a dreary wet day, as Barnaby pursued his road, sad and bent, carrying under his arm his balls and knives wrapped up in his old carpet, on the watch for some barn where, though he might not sup, he might sleep, he perceived on the road, going in the same direction as himself, a monk, whom he saluted courteously. And as they walked at the same rate, they fell into conversation with one another. "'Fellow traveller,' said the monk, "'how comes it about that you are clothed all in green? Is it perhaps in order to take the part of a jester in some mystery play?' "'Not at all, good father,' replied Barnaby. "'Such as you see me, I am called Barnaby.' and for my calling I am a juggler. There would be no pleasanter calling in the world if it would always provide one with daily bread. "'Friend Barnaby,' returned the monk, "'be careful what you say. There is no calling more pleasant than the monastic life. Those who lead it are occupied with the praises of God, the Blessed Virgin, and the saints, and indeed the religious life is one ceaseless hymn to the Lord.' Barnaby replied, "'Good father,' I own that I spoke like an ignorant man. Your calling cannot be in any respect compared to mine, and although there may be some merit in dancing with a penny balanced on a stick on the tip of one's nose, it is not a merit which comes within hail of your own. Gladly would I, like you, good father, sing my office day by day, and especially the office of the Most Holy Virgin, to whom I have devoured a singular devotion." In order to embrace the monastic life, I would willingly abandon the art by which from Soissons to Beauvais I am well known in upwards of six hundred towns and villages. The monk was touched by the juggler's simplicity, and as he was not lacking in discernment, he at once recognized in Barnaby one of those men of whom it is said in the Scriptures, Peace on earth to men of good will. And for this reason he replied, Friend Barnaby, come with me and I will have you admitted into the monastery of which I am prior. He who guided St. Mary of Egypt in the desert set me upon your path to lead you into the way of salvation. It was in this manner, then, that Barnaby became a monk. In the monastery into which he was received, the religious vied with one another in the worship of the Blessed Virgin, and in her honor each employed all the knowledge and all the skill which God had given him. The prior, on his part, wrote books, dealing, according to the rules of scholarship, with the virtues of the Mother of God. Brother Maurice, with a deft hand, copied out these treatises upon sheets of vellum. Brother Alexander adorned the leaves with delicate miniature paintings. Here were displayed the Queen of Heaven, seated upon Solomon's throne, and while four lions were on guard at her feet, around the nimbus which encircled her head, hovered seven doves, which are the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, namely, fear, piety, knowledge, strength, counsel, understanding, and wisdom.'
For her companions she had six virgins with hair of gold, namely, humility, prudence, seclusion, submission, virginity, and obedience. At her feet were two little naked figures, perfectly white, in an attitude of supplication. These were souls imploring her all-powerful intercession for their soul's health, and we may be sure not imploring in vain. Upon another page facing this, Brother Alexander represented Eve, so that the fall and the redemption could be perceived at one and the same time, Eve the wife abased, and Mary the virgin exalted. Furthermore, to the marvel of the beholder, this book contained presentments of the well of living waters, the fountain, the lily, the moon, the sun, and the garden enclosed, of which the Song of Songs tells us, the gate of heaven and the city of God, and all these things were symbols of the Blessed Virgin. Brother Marbode was likewise one of the most loving children of Mary. He spent all his days carving images in stone, so that his beard, his eyebrows, and his hair were white with dust, and his eyes continually swollen and weeping. But his strength and cheerfulness were not diminished, although he was now well gone in years, and it was clear that the Queen of Paradise still cherished her servant in his old age. Marbod represented her seated upon a throne, her brow encircled with an orb-shaped nimbus set with pearls, and he took care that the folds of her dress should cover the feet of her concerning whom the prophet declared, My beloved is as a garden enclosed. Sometimes, too, he depicted her in the semblance of a child full of grace, and appearing to say, Thou art my God, even from my mother's womb. In the priory, moreover, were poets who composed hymns in Latin, both in prose and verse, in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and amongst the company was even a brother from Picardy, who sang the miracles of Our Lady in rhymed verse and in the vulgar tongue. Being a witness of this emulation in praise and the glorious harvest of their labors, Barnaby mourned his own ignorance and simplicity. Alas, he sighed, as he took his solitary walk in the little shelterless garden of the monastery, wretched white that I am, to be unable, like my brothers, worthily to praise the Holy Mother of God, to whom I have vowed my whole heart's affection. Alas, alas, I am but a rough man and unskilled in the arts, and I can render you in service, blessed lady, neither edifying sermons, nor ingenious paintings, nor statues truthfully sculptured, nor verses whose march is measured to the beat of feet. No gift have I, alas! After this fashion he groaned and gave himself up to sorrow. But one evening, when the monks were spending their hour of liberty in conversation, he heard one of them tell the tale of a religious man who could repeat nothing other than the Ave Maria. This poor man was despised for his ignorance, but after his death there issued forth from his mouth five roses in honor of the five letters of the name Mary, Marie, and thus his sanctity was made manifest. Whilst he listened to this narrative, Barnaby marveled yet once again at the loving kindness of the Virgin, but the lesson of that blessed death did not avail to console him, for his heart overflowed with zeal, and he longed to advance the glory of his lady who is in heaven. 
How to compass this he sought, but could find no way, and day by day he became the more cast down, when one morning he awakened filled with joy, hastened to the chapel, and remained there alone for more than an hour. After dinner he returned to the chapel once more. And starting from that moment he repaired daily to the chapel at such hours as it was deserted, and spent within it a good part of the time which the other monks devoted to the liberal and mechanical arts. His sadness vanished, nor did he any longer groan. A demeanor so strange awakened the curiosity of the monks. These began to ask one another for what purpose Brother Barnaby could be indulging so persistently in retreat. The prior, whose duty it is to let nothing escape him in the behavior of his children in religion, resolved to keep a watch over Barnaby during his withdrawals to the chapel. One day, then, when he was shut up there after his custom, the prior, accompanied by two of the older monks, went to discover through the chinks in the door what was going on within the chapel. They saw Barnaby before the altar of the Blessed Virgin, head downwards, with his feet in the air, and he was juggling with six balls of copper and a dozen knives. In honor of the Holy Mother of God he was performing those feats which aforetime had won him most renown. Not recognizing that the simple fellow was thus placing at the service of the Blessed Virgin his knowledge and skill, the two old monks exclaimed against the sacrilege. The prior was aware how stainless was Barnaby's soul, but he concluded that he had been seized with madness. They were all three preparing to lead him swiftly from the chapel when they saw the Blessed Virgin descend the steps of the altar and advance to wipe away with a fold of her azure robe the sweat which was dropping from her juggler's forehead. Then the prior, falling upon his face upon the pavement, uttered these words, Blessed are the simple-hearted, for they shall see God. Amen, responded the old brethren, and kissed the ground. Moving from the sublime to the humorous, our second story this evening is by Robert Benchley, who gleefully takes on one of the too seldom challenged clichés of the Yuletide season. A Good Old-Fashioned Christmas by Robert Benchley Sooner or later, at every Christmas party, just as things are beginning to get good, someone shuts his eyes, puts his head back, and moans softly, Ah, well, this isn't like the old days. We don't seem to have any good old-fashioned Christmases anymore. To which the answer from my corner of the room is, All right, that suits me. Just what they have in mind when they say old-fashioned Christmas, you never can pin them down to telling. Lots of snow, they mutter, and lots of food. Yet, if you work it right, you can still get plenty of snow and food today snow at any rate. Then there seems to be some idea of the old-fashioned Christmas being of necessity in the country. It doesn't make any difference whether you were raised on a farm or whether your ideas of a rural Christmas were gleaned from pictures in old copies of Harper's Young People. 
you must give folks to understand that such were the surroundings in which you spent your childhood holidays, and that, ah me, those days will never come again. Well, supposing you get your wish sometime, supposing, let us say, your wife's folks who live up in East Russet, Vermont, write and ask you to come up and bring the children for a good old-fashioned Christmas while we are all still together, they add cheerily, with their flair for putting everybody in good humor. Hooray! Hooray! Off to the country for Christmas. Pack up all the warm clothes in the house, for you will need them up there where the air is clean and cold. Snowshoes? Yes, put them in. Or better yet, Daddy will carry them. What fun! Take along some sleigh bells to jangle in case there aren't enough on the pung. There must be jangling sleigh bells, and whiskey for frostbite. Or is it snakebite that whiskey is for? Anyway, put it in. We're off. Goodbye, all. Goodbye. Jangle, jangle, jangle. Jangle, jangle, jangle. Jangle, 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 jangle. In order to get to East Russet, you take the Vermont Central as far as Twitchell's Falls and change there for Torbid River Junction, where a spur line takes you right into Gormley. At Gormley you are met by a buckboard which takes you back to Torpid River Junction again. By this time a train or something has come in which will wait for the local from Bezos. While waiting for this, you will have time to send your little boy to school so that he can finish the third grade. At Russet, Grandpa meets you with the sleigh. The bags are piled in, and Mother sits in front with Lester in her lap while Daddy takes Junior and Gaga in back with him and the luggage. Get up, Esther girl! Esther girl gidaps, and two suitcases fall out. Hey-ho! Out we get and pick them up, brushing the snow off and filling our cuffs with it as we do so. After all, there is nothing like snow for getting up one's cuffs. Good, clean snow never hurt anyone, which is lucky because, after you have gone a mile or so, you discover that Gaga is missing. Never mind, she is a self-reliant little girl, and will doubtless find her way to the farm by herself. Probably she will be there waiting for you when you arrive. The farm is situated on a hill about eleven hundred miles from the center of town, just before you get into Canada. If there is a breeze in winter, they get it. But what do they care for breezes so long as they have the little Colonel oil heater in the front room to make everything cozy and warm within a radius of four inches? And the big open fireplace with the draft coming down it. Fun for everybody. You are just driving up to the farmhouse in the sleigh with the entire right leg frozen where the lap robe has slipped out. Grandma is waiting for you at the door, and you bustle in, all glowing with good cheer. Merry Christmas, Grandma! Lester is cross, and Junior is asleep, and has to be dragged by the hand upstairs, bumping against each step all the way. It is so late that you decide that you all might as well go to bed, especially as you learn that breakfast is at four-thirty. It usually is at four, but Christmas being a holiday, everyone sleeps late. As you reach the top of the stairs, you get into a current of cold air that has something of the quality of the temperature in a nice well-regulated crypt. This is the bedroom zone, and in it the thermometer never tops the zero mark from October 15th until the middle of May. Those rooms in which no one sleeps are used to store perishable vegetables in, 
and somebody has to keep thumbing the tomatoes and pears every so often to prevent their getting so hard that they crack. The way to get undressed for bed in one of Grandpa's bedrooms is as follows. Starting from the foot of the stairs, where it is warm, run up two at a time to keep the circulation going as long as possible. Opening the bedroom door with one hand, tear down the curtains from the windows with the other, pick up the rugs from the floor, and snatch the spread from the top of the bureau. Pile all these on the bed, cover it with the closet door, which you have wrenched from its hinges, and leap quickly underneath. It sometimes helps to put on a pair of rubbers over your shoes, and even when you are in bed you have no guarantee of going to sleep. Grandpa's mattresses seem to contain the overflow from the silo, corn husks, baked potato skins, and long stringy affairs which feel like pipe cleaners. On a cold night, snuggling down these is about like snuggling down into a bed of damp pine cones out in the forest. Then there are things abroad in the house. Shortly after you get into bed, the stairs start snapping. Next, something runs along the roof over your head. You say to yourself, don't be silly, it's only Santa Claus. Then it runs along in the wall behind the head of the bed. Santa Claus wouldn't do that. Down the long hall, which leads into the L of the house, you can hear the wind sighing softly with an occasional reassuring bang of a door. The unmistakable sound of someone dying in great pain rises from just below the windowsill. It is a sort of low moan with just a touch of strangulation in it. Perhaps Santa has fallen off the roof. Perhaps that story you once heard about Grandpa's house having been a hangout for revolutionary smugglers is true, and one of the smugglers has come back for his umbrella. The only place at a time like this is down under the bedclothes, but the children become frightened and demand to be taken home, and Grandpa has to be called to explain that it is only Bluebell out in the barn. Bluebell has asthma, and on a cold night they have to be very patient with her. Christmas morning dawns cloudy and cold, with the threat of plenty more snow, and after all, what would Christmas be without snow? You lie in bed for one hour and a quarter, trying to figure out how you can get up without losing the covers around you. A glance at the water pitcher shows that it is time for them to put the red ball up for skating. You think of the nice warm bathroom at home, and decide that you can wait until you get back before shaving. This breaking the ice in the pitcher seems to be a feature of the early lives of all great men, which they look back on with tremendous satisfaction. When I was a boy, I used to have to break the ice in the pitcher every morning before I could wash, is said with as much pride as one might say, when I was a boy, I stood at the head of my class. Just what virtue there is in having to break ice in a pitcher is not evident, unless it lies in their taking the bother to break the ice and wash at all. Any time that I have to break ice in a pitcher as a preliminary to washing, I go unwashed, that's all. And Benjamin Franklin and U.S. Grant and Rutherford B. Hayes can laugh as much as they like. I'm nobody's fool about a thing like that. Getting the children dressed is a lot of fun when you have to keep pumping their limbs up and down to keep them from freezing out stiff. The children love it, and are just as bright and merry as little pixies when it is time to go downstairs and say good morning to Grandma and Grandpa. The entire family enters the dining room purple and chattering and extremely cross. After breakfast, everyone begins getting dinner. 
The kitchen, being the only warm place in the house, may have something to do with it. But before long there are so many potato peelings and turkey feathers and squash seeds and floating bits of pie crust in the kitchen that the women folk send you and the children off into the front part of the house to amuse yourselves and get out of the way. Then what a jolly time you and the kiddies and grandpa have together. You can either slide on the horsehair sofa or play the wayside chapel on the piano. The piano has scrollwork on either side of the music rack with yellow silk showing through. Or look out the window and see ten miles of dark gray snow. Perhaps you may even go out to the barn and look at the horses and cows. But really, as you walk down between the stalls, when you have seen one horse or one cow, you have seen them all. And besides, the cold in the barns has an added flavor of damp harness leather and musty carriage upholstery which eats into your very marrow. Of course, there are presents to be distributed, but that takes on much the same aspect as the same ceremony in the new-fashioned Christmas, except that in the really old-fashioned Christmas the presents weren't so tricky. Children got mostly mittens and shoes, with a sled thrown in sometimes for dissipation. Where a boy today is bored by three o'clock in the afternoon with his electric grain elevator and miniature pond with real perch in it, the old-fashioned boy was lucky if he got a copy of Navy Battles of the War of 1812 and an orange. Now this feature is often brought up in praise of the old way of doing things. I tell you, says Uncle Jip, the children in my time never got such presents as you get today. And he seems proud of the fact, as if there were some virtue accruing to him for it. If the children of today can get electric grain elevators and tin automobiles for Christmas, why aren't they much better off than their grandfathers who only got oranges? Learning the value of money, which seems to be the only argument of the stand patters, doesn't hold very much water as a Christmas slogan. The value of money can be learned in just about five minutes when the time comes, but Christmas is not the season. But to return to the farm, where you and the kiddies and Gramp are killing time, you can either bring in wood from the woodshed, or thaw out the pump, or read the books in the bookcase over the writing desk. Of the three, bringing in the wood will probably be the most fun, as you are likely to burn yourself thawing out the pump, and the list of reading matter on hand includes The Life and Deeds of General Grant, Our First Century, Andy's Trip to Portland, Bound Volumes of the Jersey Cattle Breeders Gazette, and Diseases of the Horse. Then there are some old copies of Round the Lamp, for the years 1850 to 1854, and some colored plates showing plans for the approaching World's Fair at Chicago. Thus the time passes, in one round of gaiety after another, until you are summoned to dinner. Here all caviling must cease. The dinner lives up to the advertising. If an old-fashioned Christmas could consist entirely of dinner without the old-fashioned bedrooms, the old-fashioned picture, and the old-fashioned entertainments, we professional pessimists wouldn't have a turkey leg left to stand on. But, as has been pointed out, it is possible to get a good dinner without going up to East Russet, Vermont, or, if it isn't, then our civilization has been a failure. And the dinner only makes the aftermath even worse. According to an old custom of the human race, everyone overeats. Deliberately and with considerable gusto you sit at the table and say pleasantly, My, but I won't be able to walk after this. 
Just a little more of the dark meat, please, Grandpa, and just a dab of stuffing. Oh, dear, that's too much. You haven't the excuse of the drunkard who becomes oblivious to his excesses after several drinks. You know what you are doing, and yet you make light of it and even laugh about it as long as you can laugh without splitting out a seam. And then you sit and moan. If you were having a good new-fashioned Christmas, you could go out to the movies or take a walk or a ride, but to be really old-fashioned you must stick close to the house, for in the old days there were no movies and no automobiles, and if you wanted to take a walk you had to have the hired man go ahead of you with a snow shovel and make a tunnel. There are probably plenty of things to do in the country today, and just as many automobiles and electric lights as there are in the city, but you can't call Christmas with all these improvements an old-fashioned Christmas. That's cheating. If you are going through with the thing right, you have got to retire to the sitting-room after dinner and sit. Of course, you can go out and play in the snow if you want to, but you know as well as I do that this playing in the snow is all right when you are small, but a bit trying on someone over thirty. And anyway, it always begins to snow along about three in the afternoon on an old-fashioned Christmas day, with a cheery old leaden sky overhead and a jolly old gale sweeping around the corners of the house. No, you simply must sit indoors in front of a fire if you insist, but nevertheless with nothing much to do. The children are sleepy and snarling. Grandpa is just sleepy. Someone tries to start the conversation, but everyone else is too gorged with food to be able to move the lower jaw sufficiently to articulate. It develops that the family is in possession of the loudest ticking clock in the world, and along about four o'clock it begins to break its own record. A stenographic report of the proceedings would read as follows. Oh, um, I'm sleepy. I shouldn't have eaten so much. Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock, tick, tock. It seems just like Sunday, doesn't it? Look at Grandpa. He's asleep. Here, Junior. Don't plague Grandpa. Let him sleep. Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick. Talk. Junior, let Grandpa alone. Do you want Mama to take you upstairs? Oh, hum. Tick, talk, tick, talk, tick, talk. Then, as you feel your end is near, all the warm things you have ever known come back to you in a flash. You remember the hot Sunday subway to Coney, your trip to Mexico, the bullfighters of Spain. You dash out into the snowdrifts and plunge along until you sink exhausted. Only the fact that this article ends here keeps you from freezing to death with an obituary the next day reading, Died Suddenly at East Russet, Vermont, of an Old-Fashioned Christmas. You've been listening to Our Lady's Juggler by Anatole France and A Good Old Fashioned Christmas by Robert Benchley. Wishing you a very Merry Christmas. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. Be well, be happy, all the best. Mm-hmm.